The first of the scripture readings this morning comes from the Old Testament, Joshua 24, 1 through 3a, and 14 through 25. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads of the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led them through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. Now therefore revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us to us, brought us to our ancestors and up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us along the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord of our God will serve and obey him. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statutes and ordinances for them at Shechem. The second reading is from the New Testament, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. It's on page 28. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go off to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the other bridesmaids came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Thanks be to God.
we've now entered a time that I think of as between speeches. All the stump speeches of a long campaign and the election night speeches of victory and concession, they're over. And so now we're in a waiting period for the inaugural address. So we're in between speeches right now, politically. How many times have, or how many of you have at some time in your life been moved by a speech or a talk of some sort? Maybe it was the speech of a politician or a world leader. Maybe it was one of the ones just recently given. Maybe it was a teacher's lecture or a great sermon. They do happen, you know. <laughs> Maybe it was the toast at a wedding or a coach's pep talk in the locker room. I look back at the speeches that stick in my mind personally, and each of us is going to depend on our situations. Two of the ones that just leapt into my mind was, uh, one was a lesson that my New Testament professor at seminary gave us on, on the passage about considering the lilies of the field and considering the birds. And that was the best, best lecture I ever had, ever, in a class. And I've never, ever forgotten it. And also, I do remember an ordination sermon. It wasn't at my ordination. It was a, um, a few years ago. I went to ordination at Lakeside. And sat, the wonderful Sally Dick, who's now a bishop in Minnesota, was preaching. And it was electrifying. That's all I can say. It was electrifying. It was the most wonderful sermon I'd ever heard. So you can tell mine are kind of church-related. But that's okay. Now, as a history major, however, also, and with a love for literature, I love reading some of the great speeches. There's some that, you know, we can no longer hear the people speak them, but they're moving even to read some of the great speeches. You know, that great speech by Tecumseh about um, you know, nobody really has ownership of the earth, and, or Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, you know, you can hear that read or read it over and over again. And my favorite, my absolute favorite speech in literature, I think, is, is the one that's in Shakespeare's Henry V. And Henry V is, is giving his men, the soldiers, a pep talk before the Battle of Agincourt. They're way outnumbered. They're miserable. They're tired. They're exhausted. It's pouring down rain. And he has to give them a pep talk before this battle, uh, you know, a, a speech of an inspiring. And he has this fabulous speech where he tells them they are lucky to be so few and outnumbered. Because the glory of the day then will be just for them. And, he, and the words are, we few. We happy few. It's a great speech. It's a great speech. Words have the power to move us, to inspire us, to change our lives, to lead us into action, to make us make commitments. This is exactly what Joshua was trying to do in the final chapter of the history of his leadership of the Israelites. And the tricky part is that he doesn't need to prepare them. And this really is the tricky part. He's not preparing them for a big battle. He's not preparing them for some huge overwhelming task because all of that has already happened. Here's, here's what's actually going on at this point when he makes this. It sounds like he's making a big speech in, you know, in front of some huge major event, but it's not. What's going on is this. Moses, as you know, had the task of leading the people out of Egypt and to the promised land. And then he dies and hands over the leadership of the people to Joshua. And we had the Moses' um, death story a couple of weeks ago. Now Joshua's task then is to take them through the Jordan into the promised land and, and really be the overall leader of the time of conquest when they're moving into the land, taking over the land from the other peoples who were already living there. So Joshua's now come to the end of that 
time, which did require a lot of battles, a lot of hardship, alliances, arguments, wars, destruction. All of that's already happened, though. And now Joshua's task is done except for this one last thing. He's gathered all the people together and the leaders of the households together. They're going to renew their covenant with God. And he needs to convince them to commit their lives once and for all to God. Now, after knowing that that's their whole history and what's happened, you might think when he, when he comes and asks them to commit themselves and to choose God, that it's a no-brainer. Well, duh, of course they're going to choose God after all that they've gone through. But it's really not as easy as that. It's really not as easy as that. It's, it's a huge commitment, and it's a really a big deal what he's asking them to do. It's easy sometimes to ask people to make a commitment for the short term, right? Okay, you're going to have to do this one really hard task, but then it will be done, and you know that commitment will be over. And that's much easier to ask people to do than to say, okay, you're going to do this task for the rest of your life, day in, day out, every single moment. You have to be committed to this. It was a hard thing to ask people to do. And I don't, think that, I don't think Joshua thought it was a small thing either. I think there was absolute understanding that this was crucial and vital for the lives of these people. What he also was asking was a huge thing. I think we forget that once again he is asking them to commit to one God. Now I know that this already came out in the Ten Commandments and the law given on Sinai and they'd, they'd heard it already. They'd been working on the worship of one God. But probably the truth is that especially once they moved into the land of Canaan and were once again surrounded by peoples who had many gods, so did they. They kind of had one God. I mean, Jehovah was still kind of the main God in their minds. But most likely what had happened was along the way all those other gods kind of crept in because it was handy. And you wanted to hedge your bets, just in case. I'll also have a little statue of this god over here, and I'll also do this little ritual over here, because it can't hurt, you know? <laughs> nice to have a few extra gods, you know, in my court. So the people had probably been sliding back in this direction. It's really easy. The world kind of had these competing allegiances, and uh, that was always going to be the struggle. Always going to be the struggle. And Joshua had to bring them back once again to one God. This is it. Not just one God greater than the other gods. This is it. The only God. And it's tough because this God doesn't have little statues. This God is not going to feel like, you know, your little household God. This is a great and powerful, you know, you know God that's up there somewhere. It's going to be harder for you to do this. But you have to make this choice because this is it. It's this God or nothing. And we choose God. My household and I, we're going to choose God. And he's asking them a huge thing. We take for granted monotheism that there's one God. The three, three of the major religions of this world are that way now. But at the time of Joshua, they were the only ones. They were the only ones talking one God. So it was incredibly radical and major what he was asking them to do. This was a huge commitment. And you know, it was not going to be the last time that people were going to be asked to renew their commitment, renew their covenant. They were going to need to do this over and over and over again. Because it would always be the way of the people, and still is always the way of us, to start to struggle with the, the world um, demanding a variety of things from us. And that day-to-day, day-to-day, day-in, day-out following of God. 
Even the coming of Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't make us perfect. You'd think that, you know, with Jesus, wow, there again, you'd think, well, that's a no-brainer, easy to choose God after what Jesus did for us. But still, you know, we struggle. So I don't, I myself also, like Joshua, I don't take lightly any opportunity that we have as a congregation or as a people to renew our commitment Every once in a while, those, these wonderful times come up. Baptisms, the stewardship campaign, like today, which is a commitment day. Confirmation, when we take in new members, when we have a charge conference, when we have a covenant renewal time. We need those times as regularly as possible to recommit ourselves and choose once again and ask ourselves, are we committed? Uh, has our house, this is our house, has our house, this church, absolutely committed itself to God? You know, even within a generation of the life of Jesus, the early church recognized how difficult it was to stay committed this, for the long haul. And that's what the parable in Matthew is about. So let's switch gears here and look at the Matthew. Remember that right after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, there was an assumption that he was going to come back soon, anytime. You know, he was just kind of gone temporarily on a little trip, was going to be back on earth pretty soon, and everything, then that's when everything would be set right. Yeah, he hadn't done it in his lifetime, but eventually, and not very far away, it would all get set right, and the kingdom would come, and Jesus would come. And most of the early Christians believed it would happen in their lifetime. And you can see that in the earliest letters, like in First Thessalonians, probably the oldest um, piece of writing we have in the in the new testament there is that sense anytime now folks and it was really easy to ask people to commit to a very strict standard of life for that short period you know jesus is coming anytime you might as well just you know behave yourselves you might as well if you you know stay in whatever situation you're in if you're married stay married if you're not married stay not married if you're a slave stay a slave because it's not very far away before everything's going to get changed and it was easy to ask people to make that commitment but of course time went on. Jesus didn't come. People started to die. A whole generation turned over and it was getting harder and the church was being persecuted and there was still a lot of competing demands from the world. And so they needed to be reminded to commit themselves and be ready in terms of how they were living their lives. So Matthew uses this parable of Jesus as a lesson in being ready for the bridegroom, the, the coming of the kingdom of heaven. This is, that's exactly what this story is just about that, about the, about the coming of Jesus again. So here's the story. Ten bridesmaids are waiting for this to happen. On the surface, they all look alike. They all look like fairly good, decent bridesmaids. They're all in their wedding clothes. They're all excited about the party they're waiting for. They're all friends of the bridegroom. They're all believers in the bridegroom. Um, and they've all brought lamps. So it looks like they're all ready. They're, they're good bridesmaids. They're good Christians because that's who they stand for. But there's one difference between them. Five of them have brought extra oil and five of them have not. That's the only difference. Five of them we're supposed to understand are truly committed, and five of them are not. Now, the foolish bridesmaids, they were really happy to be invited to the party. They were ready, ready to go to the party. They wanted to go in with the bridegroom, but they hadn't taken the time and the effort, like Betsy was talking about. They hadn't taken the time and effort to be ready for the long haul, the hours of waiting, and, and, to do, and doing the work that it took to create the light for the bridegroom whenever he came. 
The wise bridesmaids were ready because they had done the work. They had done the work. You know, oil in the Bible often represents good deeds and blessings and gifts. And they had done that. They had been doing good. They were committed to the bridegroom by doing good things. And so they had oil. So it's, this is an easy par- parable to understand. It's not like one of those ones that's really obscure. You get it, right? I mean, the meaning is right there. Jesus is the bride's bridegroom. The foolish bridesmaids are those who are not truly committed, both by word and deed, to his service. And the wise bridesmaids are pre- prepared by storing up the light that they've given to others. Being prepared, you notice, is not just watching. It's not being obsessed with the second coming or end times. Because all the bridesmaids fell asleep, and that wasn't a bad thing. Being prepared really is about action, about doing things, and and how we go about our daily lives. So here we are, the church today. We're still waiting. (laughs) We are still waiting. We still face living each day as servants of the one God. We still anticipate the, the return of the bridegroom. And we still need to commit ourselves to action. No huge battles, just small ones, just life, just life. That's enough. So we ask you once again to commit yourselves by word and by deed, by living, by hoping, by anticipating, by choosing. In closing, I return to the final words of Lincoln's second inaugural address, a great speech again. I invite you to listen to these words and think about all the words said here today and let them help you choose for your house, for our house, a life of commitment to God. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So be it.